Morgan. I'm Isabeau. Uh, and this is Romance. Podcast about romance novels. About that cousin you flirted with a little too much. About your meddlesome aunt. About just trying to get a fucking job. About your homies helping you uh, dress a pretty girl. It's about getting a medieval romance into a Regency romance. It's about the ethics and non-ethics of cutting off family members. It's about your secretly evil aunt. It's about people pretending to feel the opposite of what they actually feel so they get a rise out of you. So like proto-trolling. It's about an evening at the theater. (laughs) It's about Shakespeare. It's about marriage as war and conquering. It's like the movies that Emma Thompson and shit, what's his name? Hugh Grant? No, the one that she married in Much Do About Nothing. Hugh Grant? The bad, the, the egoist. God, fuck. Hugh Grant? No! He, he did the Frankenstein with Helena Bonham Carter. He oh. like, was super into Shakespeare. He was oh. Hamlet. Kenneth Branagh. Yes, it's like Emma Thompson and Kenneth Branagh, but not the Much Ado version of them. It's when their marriage is on the rocks and they start doing those weird movies. For example. The one where he tries to kill her and she's a famous pianist. So it's it's a podcast about that, but mostly it's about <laughs> romance novels. <laughs> and ourselves. <laughs> Did you notice that I did a Billy Crystal impression on my sigh? That was really good. Ah, it sounded like Ray Romano. A little bit. But Billy Crystal and Ray Romano actually are in a Venn diagram together with that sound. Yeah, <laughs> good. Thank you. It's because this week's book is from 1988, back when Billy Crystal was the host of everything. And I wanted him to briefly be the host of this episode of Womance. But instead, we got Ray Romano. Who was also basically in a long-term romance novel that was boring. Are you critiquing Everybody Loves Raymond? (laughs) I'm glad someone said it. That's my hot take. One long, boring romance novel. It's Second Chance. It's the enemies to lovers. It's (laughs) friends to lovers. You know what? I think that's actually really fitting because I think Ray's mother is spot on for Aunt Agatha in this book. Thank you. I think so too. We're going to pick you up off those tinter hooks and tell you the subject of this week's episode is the Golden Heart Award winner, The Prodigal Spinster by Joan Overfield. Put out by Pageant Regency Romance. Obviously the best title of the category is series. Obviously. All right, I'll read the back of the book because I have the book in my possession. Please do. I am more than capable of managing my own life. More is underlined. Stormed Sarah Belding as she showed Brant Deverly the door. At two and twenty, the headstrong young beauty had no use for a meddlesome guardian, especially one whose dark gaze and mocking laughter left her trembling like a silly mess and was also related to her by blood. Just kidding, it doesn't say that. (laughs) Left her trembling like a silly miss. Not a silly mess. A silly miss. A puddle just forms at her feet. With a defiant toss of her head. That's a basement flooding joke. Like all great jokes. I'm glad I took the time to explain it. It's always funnier when you do. Yeah, people like it. With a defiant toss of her head, she made her position quite clear to the devilish Deverly and then assumed she had seen the last of him. 
But alas, poor Sarah had underestimated the strength of her opponent's resolve. For Deverly wasn't about to let an, a, a willful little spinster make a May game of him. Whether she liked it or not, the amber-eyed witch was his ward, and he would see to it that she was properly wed, even if he had to marry her himself. Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. The fact that they are related... Their cousin. Does not get mentioned in the back of the book. Okay. The fact that also she becomes his ward and is also a spinster. Like, there's so much happening with this prodigal spinster. Like, I feel like that's doing a lot of work on the cover and in the minds of, like, some of the characters, but not all of them, because it becomes really important that she's his ward. But, like, 22, being a ward seems ridiculous. She's a fully autonomous human. Or why is she the ward of someone? So, basically, listeners, what happens is, I'll lay it out, I'm gonna read the opening passage, and that's gonna explain to you the whole familial mishmash and where we are. This potato salad. Yeah, so Agatha Deverly, Lady Mallingham, is our hero's aunt, and he is the duke now and so his life has had to change a lot he's no longer a freewheeling marquess he now has real responsibilities and his aunt is holding him to account on all of them really aunt agatha he drawled sprawling back against the lyre-backed chair surely you are doing it a shade too brown i fail to see why you are so concerned she is of little consequence after all and society capitalized isn't likely to, she may be of little consequence, his aunt interrupted, her nose quivering in outrage. But you are not. You're the earl now. Pardon me, he's an earl now. As I am always forced to remind you, and you may be very sure that your every action is noted, your every association scrutinized, I shudder to think of the unpleasant speculation it would cause if the ton were to become aware of the minx's existence. You must do something. And pray, what would you have me do? Marry the creature? Of course not! Lady Mallingham was horrified. Have her move in with me. It's the only possible solution. And so I move in, he wheezed, with you. My God, what on earth for? Well, the Countess acknowledged in a grudging manner, we are related, although tis not something of which I'm particularly proud. Nonetheless, I am willing to do my duty to sponsor her entry into society despite her advanced years and dubious choice of occupation. So the main reason she's a ward is that his aunt wants to introduce her to society. But let's talk about how they are related sure the aunt does like a nice layout so here we go because yes listeners the hero and heroine are related isabel will you take notes and figure out how much dna they share absolutely Catherine was the eldest daughter of your uncle's cousin waldo hang on wait Catherine was the oldest daughter of your uncle Say, you have to say that again. Your uncle's cousin. Okay. Named Waldo. So Waldo beget Catherine. Okay. And I think the uncle she's referring to is her deceased husband. It is. So it's her deceased husband's cousin's granddaughter. Daughter. Is our heroine. Yeah. So it's not very near. It's removed of some of some sort. It, that's like two removals then because it's the granddaughter of a direct cousin i don't think they would have to prove that one of them had been sterilized to get married in wisconsin right absolutely not like this would have been legal in 
New Jersey at the time. Yeah. To this very day, probably. People don't like to ask a lot of questions when you go to apply for a marriage license, I understand. I understand they ask you a lot of questions, but they're all on paper and they're all yes or no. It's funny because there's this line in Guys and Dolls, uh, the musical movie with Frank Sinatra, where he tells Adelaide that they, they have to go get a blood test. And I always thought that line was so funny and like such a weird throwback. I, in Missouri, in whatever year I was married, was not asked to get a blood test, so. Our parents got blood tests before they were allowed to get married. And what's that? Eugenics. They weren't (laughs) trying to see. That's a holdover from eugenics being a cool thing. And I'm glad that you didn't have to do it. Do you think Missouri doesn't do it because Missouri doesn't believe in eugenics or Missouri doesn't do it because love is love between two family members in the great state of Missouri. I think it's love is love is between two family members as long as like it's not that close. Yeah, as long as it doesn't lead to any like puppy mill meth empire disputes. I mean, it does that anyway (laughs) it's like the cousin's granddaughter like that's fine that's just like you oh you live in the next county i know your farm that's all one that's acceptable it's all in good fun i believed that they were first cousins at various times during this book because i kept trying to figure out like i'm like are they married first cousins like she's on because the aunt agatha is not a blood relation to brant our hero his blood uncle the dead uncle that made him the earl is his so then i was like well is she related to agatha or is she related to brant and it turns out she's related to brant but it's fairly distant but they like press hard on cousin he calls her cousin sarah as he's licking the inside of her mouth he says he has a responsibility to her because she is after all his baby cousin yep Those are words that are spoken. He doesn't like all these other guys looking at his cousin Sarah like that. Doesn't like it at all. He wants to teach his cousin Sarah how to dance. Like it is, it's like very relentlessly, these two are cousins. And I love that it's like a throw, like an almost throwaway line at the beginning of the book. But I think it was like structured to be confusing enough that you're like, uh? But here's my question. Why not just make her related to Agatha? I know. Like, that would have solved everything. Because then I wouldn't have felt skeevy about it. Then I would have been like, oh, he's using it as, like, a kind of familiarity so that he can be more intimate with her. Versus, like... Mm, That's chill and cool. (laughs) No, it's not. But it would have been, like, less gross than, like, we share, you know, this many chromosomes together. Hey, guys, here's a hot dating tip to get closer to that special someone. Pretend to be related to her. I meant in the strictures of the Regency (laughs) historical. I didn't mean whatever. Just walk up to a fine young filly at any bar and be like, hey. Are we cousins? I think we're cousins. You know someone I know. Boom. I mean, there we go. That's that's how love is. I hope someone isolates the audio where you say he used his cousinness to get closer to her. It uses it to blackmail you. Oh, they can blackmail me for way weirder stuff on this podcast. What the fuck are you talking about? That's like on on the spectrum of fucked up shit I have said out loud on the internet. I don't even think that ranks in top twenty. 
this has been like the most incesty month on romance. And I wonder if incest adjacent isn't a trope of category romances because we also experienced it in How Can the Heart Forget? When the dad married the... The youngest daughter married her step-uncle. And then in Tangled Threads... Yeah, she (laughs) pretended to be her brother's wife and then married her brother's father-in-law. Making her brother, her literal brother, her son-in-law. Do category (laughs) romance writers just think like (laughs) connections outside of families are too complex to manufacture in a work of fiction? They're like, listen, everybody knows five people. They're all related. And everyone else they meet is through these relatives. And sometimes they pretend to be married to their brother. And that could be it. Like, it's too, it takes up too many lines on the page to be like, then they happen to meet. I mean, remember how Baroque the setup was of the golden songbird? Like, she had to be gambled off by her stepfather. I mean, I would prefer that to any of the other. <laughs> well, come on. I know. It's worth it. If any writers, uh, if there are any budding romance writers listening to the podcast, best wishes. That's so exciting. Also, you don't have to make them related. I know that like The Crown is very popular right now and like Cousins Marry Cousins and that. And I know that the TV show Victoria is very popular and they are first cousins. But like if you're going to write in England, which like why England? And you're going to write a historical fine they don't have to be cousins did you know that the average european like white europeans dna is 20 percent inbred and the average in america is like 0.05 i don't know if those are the exact numbers but it's like a huge dearth between like how inbred europeans are to how inbred americans are we're less inbred which you know but we oftentimes get typified as like ooh, you guys are out there in west virginia just inbreeding. I think the reason why we get typified that way, because in Europe, it's the aristocracy that's doing it all the time. Like, I don't get the sense that people in Glasgow are marrying their cousins. There is aristocracy in Glasgow. Of course there is. But like, I'm, I don't think there's people in Dundee who are marrying their cousins. How about that? Fine, in Dundee. But you know what I mean? Where it's like, once the aristocracy has normalized fucking your cousins and your sisters you know it's like then it's like that's a really good point what's something that's trashy if you're poor and classy if you're rich incest that's a really good point and that brings us to the prodigal spinster. the prodigal spinster but they're not that related so like i'm glad that we got that out of the way because he brings it up all the time there were definitely points where i was like how close are we talking i don't He likes it. He does. It's like, it's a thing. He's like, he loves that they're already family. This guy logs onto Pornhub, sees stepsister, and clicks. Because he, what's the opposite of protesting too much? Not protesting at all. (laughs) Thou doth not protest enough (laughs) when calling her your cousin, my guy. Yeah, dude. So our heroine is of the plucky variety that we've become accustomed to on this show. I think the only non-plucky heroine was in Tangled Threads. She was rather passive. The book tells us she's plucky and she does resist moving in with her aunt. She's like, I've got a job lined up. You guys were, you know, renounced my mother because she married a country doctor. I have no interest in being with you. 
just like our last Regency, right? The family disowned. and But now she like gets guilted into staying with this family because the aunt pretends to be like infirmed, very sensitive. And so she sticks around to have this season at her aunt's insistence, which is actually entirely about class and born of a deep resentment towards our heroine. And her father and her mother's choices. Let's talk about Aunt Agatha. Okay. That meddlesome wench. Definitely like the mom, and everybody loves Raymond. Absolutely. She's also got a signature color, and that signature color is orange. Sure is. They make a lot of truck with that. They absolutely do. Anti-orange propaganda. And also, like, the aunt is living her best life. Her husband's dead. She's got nothing but time and money. She's gonna order very daring dresses in very daring colors, which she wasn't allowed to have when she was a staid married lady. You know what? She didn't have any kids of her own. She's got this, like, mealy-mouthed fucking... Earl, who she has to, like, drag by the nose to all of his duties and responsibilities. Right, this Ironic baby who's going to inherit. One of the things that I did like about their dynamic is that it did feel very maternal and filial. He shows up once a week to make sure she's okay, that she has what she needs. He'll go to the theater with her if he has to. But there is genuine affection there. It's very clear that she doesn't have to like put his thumbs to the screw to get him to do the thing that she wants him to do often enough. And in this case, it's go. Yeah. He wants to make her happy. Yeah. Even if he makes a big theatrical production of doing it. he Both of them are very dramatic. Well, that's the thing. Those two characters, Aunt Agatha and our hero, Brant, they're very aligned. They're very close. And we have our heroine, who is very much an outsider looking in, who doesn't realize she's an outsider looking in. When um, she first agrees to stay with her aunt, she Brant comes to visit and see how she's doing. Because she was very sick when he got her from... Her little boarding house. house. And so she's gotten better. And so she's going to come downstairs and say hello to Brant. She says, you know, I, I want to stick around because I feel so heartsick for your aunt. She's so alone and she just wants what's best for me. And he starts laughing inside because he's like, oh, okay. And his aunt tells him like, listen, man, I've got this character that I've built and you cannot blow this for me. It's not really something that gets like interrogated. The ultimate resolution of the novel is that Agatha was the puppet master. These two are both very convinced of their own autonomy in what's happening in their lives. But in fact, they have none. In fact, they are at the mercy of the orange dictator, Aunt Agatha. It was Agatha all along. That's so true. It really was Agatha all along who has been like plotting to bring the two of them together. I guess she just likes keeping it all in the family. Brant thinks, I'm going to keep Sarah around to take care of Agatha, and that'll take some of the burden off of my back and make me feel less guilty about leaving Agatha alone this whole time. Agatha thinks, I'm going to marry off this little chit, and it'll be fun for me, and it will tie up any loose ends in our family reputation. Our heroine thinks... If I can get through this season, I can get back to the life I had planned. Which is to go be a governess in Cornwall. We have all these three people who are all at cross purpose. Um, The one who ultimately gets her happily ever after is Aunt Agatha. But Aunt Agatha is so similar 
to the ant from our last novel. Aunt Aurelia. Which was The Golden Songbird by Sheila Walsh. And it feels like an ant is a trope. We've read it twice. We're going to call it a trope. But also, I think it it's not that we've read it twice because we've read it way more than that. Because then we also have Aunt Catherine de Berg in Pride and Prejudice. We have a series of aunts in other books that we've read. We've definitely read aunts in Woodowis and Johanna Lindsay. Aunts, what is it about the maternal adjacent that does the thing that the maternal does but doesn't come with the mom? boy attribute is like that it I think it's the fact that like your aunt can be kind of mean to you and it doesn't lead to an existential crisis mm-hmm. and that it can be funny ants can be funny in ways that like moms can't like bad aunt is definitely a trope but it's not mm-hmm. something we call out like bad dad yeah or bad mom as like formative identity bad aunt is just a catalyst towards you getting your ultimate the happily ever after like even think about Catherine de Berg, who is definitely an antagonist in Pride and Prejudice, but she's also a catalyst that leads towards the ultimate happily ever after. And I think like even culturally, we understand ants as these like fun characters. Somehow you're not like a weirdo, but then one of your siblings has children and suddenly you exclusively wear orange. Right. And it's also maternal. Like they do care about one another. And like the fact that she says, I've created this character where I'm like feeble and whatever and nice and compassionate don't blow my cover with Sarah because I need her to think these things about me so that I can buy clothes for her yeah oh man get ready for a cross stitch pattern an aunt is a relative but an aunt is also a pal yeah, I think that's what it is. And that you can pal around with them. Brant is allowed to speak to his aunt in a way that he wouldn't be allowed to speak to his mother. Yeah. An aunt is not an entity that you have to become independent from. Mm. Like an ant is a liminal space. Fuck, yeah, an ant is an ocean. <laughs> the an ant is an ocean. Suddenly it makes so much more sense because we haven't read very many uncles. We've pretty much just primarily read meddlesome aunts. Do you know what Whitney, my love, Whitney, the titular Whitney goes to live with her aunt and uncle and her uncle's this charming person, but he's also like very low interference. Like a negative space. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. An aunt is a liminal space and an uncle is a negative space. I love my uncles. Uncles are nice. This isn't a real review of uncles, but it might be a real review of aunts. But why why do ants function this way, especially for our male characters and our female characters in ways that we don't see with uncles almost ever? And I actually think that there's quite a bit here and I would love now to do a series about ants and uncles because I think great ants in literature. But my immediate feeling is, and I have nothing to back this up, I'm, I'm working through this theory as I'm speaking with you. You can have a maternal adjacent liminal space aunt who you can pal around with, who you can like be intimate and also potentially a little bit vulgar with or, you know, brutal. Like you can be honest with your aunt in a way that maybe- you... Or your aunt can be vulgar with you. Right. There's like a transgressive move here that like isn't allowed with moms in the same way, especially with boys. Because if you're too close with your mother, that says something- That's weird. That's Freudian. Right. But you can be close with your aunt. And then the thing with uncles, and I'm weird that we don't see it more with male characters, especially our heroes with uncles, because I think that feels weird that we don't. You can't have an uncle who's too invested in a heroine. Because that's pretty weird. Right. Because then you've got the creepy uncle thing going on. 
So I think the reason why we see aunts is because we don't want to have creepy mom vibes. And the reason we don't see uncles is because creepy uncles exist for real. Does that feel right? Yeah. Okay. That feels right. I have to say, I I really like that we talked about uncles, but... There are no uncles in this book. (laughs) But also I feel like ants, for the most part, can exist completely independent of an uncle. Yes. Of like a named persona, the uncle. But if you have an uncle in a romance novel, you always have an aunt. Always. A living one. Yeah. Who is more important to the book. Yeah. There are no like widower uncles just hanging around, caring about their wards. Buying you dresses. That doesn't happen. Taking you to balls. But we talked about this in the show notes and maybe this can move us into the Pygmalion versus She's All That. Especially in My Fair Lady, one of the things that's weird is how Colonel Pickering and Henry Higgins operate in that movie musical. Colonel Pickering feels like a doddering uncle should. Like he has this very weird phone call where Eliza disappears and he's like talking to the cops and he's like, I don't know, she's a girl. She has hair and lots of it. And she was wearing a dress. Like he doesn't know anything useful about her to tell the cops when he's trying to report a missing person, which is the acceptable amount an uncle should know about the physicality of someone. Uncles (laughs) should always be a little bit bumbling to feel safe. Right. But Henry Higgins knows that her hair is brown and that her eyes are brown and that she's thin and that she was wearing white, which makes him the romantic lead that he's allowed to be. Makes him the cousin that you kiss. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we talk more about Pygmalion as a trope in our episode on The Proposition by Judith Ivory, which is considered a reverse Pygmalion. But Pygmalion starts off with this idea, uh, a Greek myth of man building a woman, a fake woman, falling in love with the inanimate object and then the gods make her real. Whereas My Fair Lady is taking like a living thing and then shaping it into the woman. But then we have what I feel perhaps is just as the My Fair Lady structure is somewhat discreet from the Pygmalion structure, although an evolution of that, I do feel like She's All That is another version of that where the sportingness of creating a woman you can be with as like a collaborative project amongst men, the formation of a female identity by a committee of penises. Uh, So this book is not just about our hero taking it upon himself to make his cousin marriageable. He doesn't care if she gets married. He would like her to just be a companion for his aunt. But after seeing her on her first night out at the theater, he realizes her his aunt has purchased her an apricot or orange adjacent dress and that people will make fun of her and that will be embarrassing. And so he gets with his best friend Marcus and some guy named Hugh. They were all in the army together. This will be interesting. We should try to get her married by the end of the season. Let's get her an offer. Let's get her a proposal. How are we going to do it? That's our new mission as army buds. Exactly. They talk about how achieving a wedding is not unlike a war. Marcus is qualified to help because he spent so much time avoiding a wedding. And Hugh is qualified to help. He's gotten one sister married off. He's got pretty good odds. They go to a dressmaker shop and try to pick out outfits and fabrics. Hugh fucks it up because he thinks you can like wear something other than a velvet as a writing habit. And then Marcus comes in and picks out the velvet for the writing habit. Listen, 
Listen, Hugh picked out a tool and taffeta fuchsia pink and he's like this will go great with her complexion and then marcus rides in and he's like we're not arguing about her fucking complexion we're talking about what she can wear in a riding habit it's got to be a durable fabric durable like velvet because she's gonna be on a horse for hours you can't wear tool on a hunt hugh where's your brain at (laughs) but what's great is that we get the perspective of the dressmaker who's just like oh my god Please stop touching things. This is the worst two hours of my life. That is 100% what the Modest was thinking. And meanwhile, these three dudes are having the time of their life. Because they're forming the woman they dream of, right? She wears these daringly low-cut gowns. But what they like most about her, once they get done buying her outfits, is that she's wearing the outfits that they chose for her. That they picked! And I think that's the thing. That actually is such, like, a pithy statement. I I think about the male gaze a lot and how it's, like, a part of us. But I think, like, so much of the male gaze isn't so much about, like, the particulars of, like, showing your boobies. Boys like to look at boobies. Right? Because men always say they're visual creatures unless it's about like having a poster other than reservoir dogs in your house some kind of wall art like if men were actually like visual creatures they wouldn't have eight empty Gatorade bottles in their bedrooms (laughs) such a fucking good point that you've literally just made that's like reoriented the entire conversation of like men being like I'm a visual creature you're so right if you're a visual creature your bed wouldn't look like that my guy fucking change your sheets Yeah, the formation of the male gaze, right, isn't about, like, the particulars of how good or bad something looks or even how, like, sexual or non-sexual something looks. It's about power. It's about, look at her following the rules that I have laid out as acceptable. She is thin because everything I've done has said thin is good or she is thin. And it's because everything I like is thick. Like, right? They don't actually care that much. Marcus and Hugh do not objectify Sarah at all. They do not salivate over her. They do not long for her touch. But they always comment on how she looks because they had a part in it. They do. They feel really proprietary. Yeah, it's a, it's more about control than anything else. They're proud of themselves. In that moment for choosing something that did go with her complexion, she goes to a ball in one of the dresses that they have basically designed for her. Yeah, and Hugh, like an idiot, says... I knew that would look good on you. And she's like, what do you mean? There's this moment where he's like, well, I knew it had it had good drape. And I think there's something in here about three heterosexual dudes having so much fun. And you said it earlier, it's like, it's played to comedic effect. And I think that's right. But that is one of the weird moments of unrestrained, different kind of masculinity. Yeah. Not to say that it isn't, destructive because I think it is proprietary and not to say that it isn't the male gaze because it is but to see three incredibly masculine warrior dudes show up at a modest shop with one very overworked modest who's just please stop pawing at all of my beautiful and expensive fabrics and to have them talk about drape is funny and it's inherently funny because men don't know what drape is and like that's like the prison of gender yeah I loved that scene 
because I was meant to, because it was meant to tickle my funny bone in all the ways that Colonel Pickering and Henry Higgins are meant to tickle my funny bone because they don't know how to dress a woman for a very important ball where they're trying to pass her off as aristocracy. And they have like this kind of vision, but they don't know how to put it into play. And when it is put into play by the work of the Modeste, they're like, it was me all along. Yeah, exactly. The thing about the community and the she's all that, right? Hugh and Marcus are his friends. They could very easily be portrayed by Paul Walker and Cisco. Hugh is definitely meant to be the comic relief. Marcus is definitely meant to be the cool one. It's all there in this book from 1988. And I think there's something in that specific typography and that communalness coming together to form a woman. And there's also something in the top of the staircase dress reveal that also happens in this book. Listen, when she came down the stairs in that dress that Hugh had helped make... And I heard, kiss me, down in the milky twilight, lead me out on the moonlit floor. Yeah, man, I saw Freddie Prince Jr. at the bottom of those stairs, and he doesn't say anything. Brant, our titular Freddie Prince Jr., doesn't say anything because he's gobsmacked. And aren't all of us just waiting for a moment to be gobsmacked. That's like one of the things that I love most about romance novels is male gaze, male gaze, male gaze, female gaze. Because a close-up on Freddie Prince Jr.'s face as... That swallow. The swallow of his Adam's apple bobbing as we can't even see Rachel Lee Cook as she's coming down the stairs. We don't even see her anymore. We are full-on close-up apple hey baby what that adam's apple do yeah and it's like (laughs) that's not for dudes that's the female gaze exactly and like the fact that the romance novel i think does that so well like there's a lot of head hopping in this book that i didn't love but like that's one where she's so nervous at the top of the stairs and she's thinking about like how she's gonna get down the stairs and then we immediately switch to brant's perspective but we are looking at him look at her and hit oh i love that I genuinely love that Freddie Prince Jr. moment. And like, you know, it's not as good when. <laughs> I mean, Brant's not exactly a winner, but like he's no Freddie Prince Jr. The three of them like go and call upon this matron to try and secure her like entry into All Max and have tea. And like that's the I don't know what the exact evolution is and I don't know what the purpose of it is like like I understand why we went from Pygmalion to My Fair Lady because I think it's got to be more than comic relief because oh I I have a theory it's because it's kind of gross if one guy is forming a woman into his own personal vision of sexuality of like a desirable woman if you have three guys though and their project is make her prom queen it suddenly breaks up that idea of are you building a wife it's like less stepford and more like fun activity for friends but i think this is part of what we talked about earlier she's all that takes an actually pretty radical step between pygmalion my fair lady and the prodigal spinster because paul walker is an antagonist and he begins to like undermine the project the fact that we have the committee all working together the fact that henry higgins has his colonel pickering the fact that brant has hugh and marcus and that they're all working together and i think you're right to say that this takes the creep factor down because we have then the comedic 
role of this, but what it also gives us is masculine affection. We understand Brant as a good person because these two other people like him and want to help him. We understand Brant as a thoughtful person because he has thoughtful friends that know what drape is. There's something in here about he's not expressing affection to a mistress or even his aunt. This is a mode in which men can talk to each other about non-masculine things and have it still be acceptable. That does happen and she's all that, but something really dark begins to happen with Paul Walker as he begins to undermine the project of forming the woman together. Oh, yeah. And then it isn't about being buddies. She's all that is a further evolution Mm -hmm. of what this discussion really is as like Rachel Lee Cook becomes like an autonomous human and really challenges what she's being made to do because in all of these other versions, they only challenge it at the end. Pygmalion, the statue never challenges. Eliza Doolittle only challenges at the very, very end and she comes back anyway for recapitulation. Sarah only challenges at the end. Rachel Lee Cook isn't as friendly to her glow up. No, and by the end of the movie, right, we see that she has taken what she needs, you know, to make herself more aerodynamic in social situations in order to make herself feel like more comfortable. She takes what she needs from it and she doesn't fully embody what she was created for. Whereas our heroine in this book, she has a brief moment of trying to find other employment by going behind her family's back. And it blows up in her face and she's immediately humbled and decides to stick with the idea of not getting a job and just staying with her aunt. She falls in line pretty quickly with Brant's original vision. Right. So what happens is her (laughs) aunt is out of the house. Her cousin Brant, um, because they are cousins, uh, I don't know if you know this, Isabeau, but they cousin. Our heroine has an old friend come and visit and she's like, you should go out for this companionship job because the season's almost over and like, what's going to happen afterwards? And she's like, you're right, I should. And she stays the whole time and she ends up being chosen because she's the only candidate who speaks German. And the Duke is like, let me introduce you to my mother who you'll be a companion with. And there is her aunt sitting at tea. It's a big mess. And it's also the point of threat where the hero realizes that the Pygmalion can leave him. The Pygmalion has legs and a brain and desires and isn't just like a mannequin that he can dress up and carry around places and thus becomes completely desirous of her. It's reiterated to us that a choice exists. Yeah, like a good choice. Like she would be happy as speaking German to the companion of this Duke's mother. Yeah, and in fact, at the very end of the novel, she receives two letters, an offer of marriage from a boring normie. And then uh, an offer that was like, hey, if you still want this job just between us, like, I would love to have you still be my mother's companion. That's what incites our hero to fevered, clammy-handed proposal. Whereas, like, I don't feel like Eliza Doolittle had much of a choice. Well, her whole project when he calls her out in front of the theater where he's like listen to her listen to this little gutter snipe she could work in a flower shop on piccadilly except it's this accent that prevents her and so she shows up the next day and she said you said you could make me work in a flower shop i want that and she brings ready money right like she is prepared to do the project and he's like oh 
a challenge. But Eliza is clear-eyed in it. Like, she isn't tricked in the way that Sarah's tricked or that Rachel Lee Cook is tricked and she's all that. I think that makes a really big difference because then when Eliza develops feelings for Higgins and, like, you know, does the whole thing, it's like he's made her too good to work in a flower shop. Her accent now would set her apart as a true lady and she can't do the thing that she had set out to do. The terms of their agreement have been breached. I also think it's important that across these three ideas is that the heroine character is always of a lower social socioeconomic class than the hero. And that prevents her from being able to have the kind of mobility and power that she wants. So she's willing to like make explicit this power relationship. Like you pick out my clothes you take care of me and I will hang out with you. It's been a while since I've seen She's All That. So I'm not sure what was in it for Rachel Lee Cook. Well, she thinks that she's being tricked from the beginning. And then he's like, no, I want to hang out with you because she can't know that he's like doing this thing for a bet. Yeah. Um, so like he begins to like earnestly pay her attention. And then it turns out that like he earnestly. He does the hacky sack performance art to show his uh, good intentions. Mm hmm. One of the things that happens in The Prodigal Spinster, right, she definitely is of a lower social class. One of the most visceral things that happens is that when she arrives, she's very thin and gaunt and sickly. And then over the course of the novel, she starts to gain weight and she can barely fit into the dresses that were purchased for her at the beginning of the season. And that is so visceral. Like, you're no longer starving. And like, you didn't even know you were starving before. I think that was the thing that really upset me the most is that she didn't know that she was starving. Like, in some ways, I thought it was really nice that this book was like, here is a woman who has gained weight. And because she has gained weight, she is more attractive and she is healthier and she is all of these things. Like, I I don't, I can't readily remember a romance novel. Weight gain never happens in a romance novel. Right. I can't readily remember if that's ever happened and like. Or one that we've read. Right. And so that felt strangely refreshing for 1988. But the fact that she didn't know that she was starving and that everyone else in the upper class could see it and then like did the thing to try to get her to gain weight and now her dresses don't fit anymore was like such like a little dark truth note where I was like I love that you did this but I don't love our starting point I don't like the context of it right another great nugget of truth that's way more self-aware because I think it really speaks as well to this Pygmalion thing her aunt said says you need to learn how to dance so that we can go to balls for the season and her aunt's like we're gonna hire a dancing master and she's, Sarah says, thank you, Aunt. Sarah smiled in gratitude. I was thinking of mentioning it to Lord Mallingham, but heavens, don't do that, Lady Mallingham explained, exclaimed in horror. He would insist upon instructing you himself, and that would only end in disaster. But why? Sarah was puzzled by her aunt's vehemence. Sarah, Lady Mallingham gave her a sagacious look. Take it from an old lady. There are two things a woman should never allow her nearest male relation to teach her. The first is handling a team of horses, and the second is dancing. We will hire the dancing master. Sarah was coming to know that determined note in the countess's voice and bowed to her wishes. Very well, my lady, she said, if you think it best. I do, Lady Mallingham nodded firmly. My Henry once tried teaching me how to drive a gig, and it almost ended our marriage. If I had known how to point a gun, I vow I would have shot him. Trust me, Sarah. 
Nothing makes a man more insufferably arrogant to, than to think he is the only one to teach you anything. <laughs> so, like, here we are, and I think we're starting to see, like, pre-she's all that. Like, people are like, there's something really fucked about Pygmalioning. Nowadays, we, like, people outright say on TikTok, the youngsters, they're like, we've moved past this narrative. We don't need it anymore. It doesn't serve any purpose. And I wonder if we ever needed it. First of all, I think that's true in life. No one likes having sex with a virgin, but everyone likes the idea of having sex with a virgin, right? Older men love younger women, and it's because I think they really get like, let's wildly generalize about men. They love to be the first most knowledgeable being (laughs) in a woman's life. I'm not going to argue with that because I think the idea of knowledge in this case is power, right? We're talking about a gig, which is driving. When she was talking about taking the reins and like wanting to shoot her husband, it's like I knew that I was listening to someone talk about learning how to like drive. Driving isn't about knowing how to drive. Driving is about freedom. Driving is about being able to be in charge of how you get somewhere faster and not be reliant on public transit. And the fact that Agatha says it like that and says it so baldly. It's not like she gets a female dance teacher. You know, she just gets someone that isn't related and isn't going to lord it over you all the time. So there's like an anonymousness that's important. We are paying this person to do this. Right. That creates the appropriate bridge that's not going to become interpersonal and weird. Right, because it's transactional. And have you noticed, I just had a conversation with Someone who was like, who had just read like an article about slave labor, contemporary slave labor, and like was relentlessly telling me about it like I didn't already know. Like it wasn't even that like deep. It wasn't that nuanced or interesting. And I kept being like, yeah, and this and this. And then they would go back after I had said that to telling me something. And I think it's because they are so enamored of the idea of like, carrying knowledge to you because it does it does feel powerful one of the things that that moment is speaking to is an insidious patriarchy and that particular move is inherent to like the pygmalion being the only one who taught you anything and the fact that this book like identifies it first of all i think is Telling us, like, Agatha's the one in charge here. Uh, everyone else, everything else is just a ruse and, like, a fun playtime. But I think it's also super interesting to read a She's All That narrative that has that in it. And that's why I think, like, there's something about She's All That that feels like an evolution even from this point. Of course, yeah. Because she does end up with Brant. And he does teach her how to dance. And he does insist that they dance together without music. And they end up thigh to thigh and chest to chest, about to kiss. And then Marcus comes in and he goes, what am I interrupting? Cool guy, Marcus. And he keeps their secret that they were like thigh to thigh and chest to chest, almost about to kiss. He recovers. And one of the things that I thought about this book, and I've actually like, I was thinking about it a lot while I was reading it. Because truth be told, I was kind of bored. But I was thinking about what it meant that Marcus could understand the social situation really quickly and react 
really quickly and do the social nicety thing, which was give everybody space and pretend like it didn't happen. Give everyone an out. Give everyone a reasonable out and then not question anybody about it. Marcus is such a good guy and he only brings it up much later when Brant brings it up to him. And one of the things that I was thinking is like, I hate small talk, things about Isabeau that you maybe could have guessed. I don't like it. Drives me mad. And... I think part of the reason why I don't like it is because I'm not very good at it. And like, I can't read these kinds of social niceties well. That's not a skill that I was raised to have. Like, it's not a talent I've developed. And so I don't have patience for it. But I was so enraptured by Marcus's skill in it in that moment, especially as it's compared to Hugh in the ballroom and other people where I was like, oh shit, small talk is actually really, really important in these moments of like creating outs. And then these moments of creating like, like soothing feathers rather than ruffling them. And I think it's important that we do take a lot of stuff more earnestly and that we talk more honestly, because I think small talk can cover a lot of sins, which is part of the reason why I think I have very little patience for it, where it's like, if you're only talking small talk, you're never talking big talk, which means that you can hide your real feelings, which sucks because that makes it harder to understand people's motivations and like blah, blah, blah. But there was something in this drawing room scene that I was like, this was very deftly done. And I admire that. It was also like pretty sexy. I was, Marcus is the sexiest one. <laughs> Marcus is cool guy Marcus. Marcus has a puka shell necklace in my mind. Even though this was a Regency romance, he had soft, flippy hair and a puka shell necklace. And he was just grabbing his frisbee. Want to join? That's Marcus. And he, he gets to marry uh, Hugh's sister at the end. There's something interesting about the fact that when you bring more characters fully formed and invested into a romance novel, the stakes are lowered for the two people in the middle. I think it does a lot to like alleviate things like angst mm -hmm. because our hero doesn't have to be the one to like make a mistake. It's Hugh. And like our hero doesn't have to be the one to like dampen the heat because that's Marcus's job um, or the heroine doesn't have to. And so it does like they take on like the the annoying parts of falling in love in a historical context and uh, shoulder that burden for our hero and heroine. What was your sexiest part? Probably the dance. The fact that they're like doing it without music and that he like pulls her close on purpose and like they're just like she's all a flutter and like she's actually a better dancer than she is, but she can't manifest that. What's great about that scene and they almost kiss is that they both bring it up later and it becomes like an inside intimacy because it's not a joke because they both know how like titillating and how on the edge both of them were about it. Whenever either of them obliquely refers to dancing without music, both of them get like immediately flushed and hot for the other yeah it's a gift that keeps on giving it is absolutely i also love that we do get the freddie prince jr adam's apple bob as he marcus is like oh why don't i dance with her and you can play the piano and he just like very stiffly and contemplatively plays piano while Marcus and her dance, she has this awareness of him in the back of her mind. And then that just, like you said, just carries on throughout the rest of the book. Yeah, that was my sexiest part. Morgan, what was your sexiest part? And if it wasn't about Marcus, I don't want to hear it. Well, fingertips in ears. I really love the kiss. 
the first kiss, and one of the things I love about it is that nothing happens afterwards. <laughs> like they don't have a conversation about it, but they have these moments of acknowledgement. And she moves through the rest of the book up until someone makes an offer for her. And he moves through the rest of the book, not really thinking about this nuptially. Neither of them are like, now I must join my life to yours until I die. And I wonder if I've ever really like had a strong preference for a steamy romance at all, because I'm very satisfied with stuff like that. You know, whenever this kind of chastity is done well and feels like butterfly feels like it's on the edge of something as you said earlier I think this book does a really good job of that and I understand why it would win a golden heart it does that like fluttery feeling so well I love when they go to the country house to help her aunt get better or is she even sick right I I, the scenes at the country house I thought were really good Especially because he's worried that, like, after the, you know, hubbub of London that it will be boring for her. And she has to remind him that she grew up in the country and that she's, like, the daughter of a country sawbones. And, like, there's this whole thing with, like, a tenant farmer who, like, might lose his arm. And, like, she's, like, really good and shows, like, her metal, as it were. I love moments like that where the hero and the heroine are both taken out of their context for each other. And then they each get to see each other in a new light and they like it. Well, they, they're at a house party, and the big fi- finale night is the big prom, if you will, is a costume party, and she finds, like, some medieval gowns in the attic, and she's going to go as, like, a member of Henry VIII's court, and then he finds out what she's wearing, and he's like, you should wear these custom jewels, and he's like, so Henry VIII got Le- Lady Deverly these amethysts to match this dress, and then her husband got her this tiara. And I want you to wear the tiara for me. And she's like, why would he have gotten her the tiara? And he's like, because he wanted to show King Henry that we take care of our own. And I was like, that shit is sexy, though. You show a king. It was so nice. It was so nice. And then she did. And then she did. She got to wear a snood, which which I love. They go out into the garden because the aunt allows her nephew to believe that Sarah has accepted the proposal, even though Sarah promised to tell him before she accepted any proposal. And Sarah has, in fact, decided that she wants to go and live with the, be a companion. That was her initial decision. But thankfully, she doesn't spill the beans on that one to her cousin because he decides that she has to marry him instead. He forgets that there are other options. And she's like, I... I like marrying you best of all. It is fully a she's all that moment. He finds out what she's wearing to the costume party and he dresses like a member of Henry VIII's court. So they're like a little bit matching. She's like at the top of the stairs. The Yeah, the denouement of the novel is like totally lovely. And like he doesn't do anything like super possessive of her. He just is like, just tell me if you're going to marry someone else first. Like, let me know. And she's like, of course I will, right? Wouldn't do anything without you, Cousin Brant. He's like, thank you so much, Cousin Sarah. And then out in the garden, he's like, you're going to marry him. You said that you would tell me. And she's like, I'm not. I don't know why you're saying that. And he's like, Aunt Agatha said. And she's like, Aunt Agatha's wrong. I don't. And he's like, smooch. We don't have to get through the rest of the conversation. And she's like, well, I guess I'm going to marry you now. 
Yeah. And I, I love the description of how the house was set up with fairy lights, which I was like, okay, fairy light. What are Regency fairy lights? Literal dead fairies captured. Dead fairies just shaken. strung up throughout the... <laughs> Yeah. It's like, why would you say fairy lights and not like tiny candles? It was such a choice and like lots of roses and like the room was thick with the musk of roses. It's so nice. Golden heart winner. Anyways, what was the weirdest part? I mean, I think we've talked a lot about the cousin aspect and I think that was my initial weirdest part. I think the other thing is like, I wish he would stop calling her cousin Sarah. I wish someone had gone through with a red pen and crossed out all the cousins in front of Sarah. Uh, 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 uh. Why was it so insistent? So insistent. To the point where I'm like, you want me to know that they are family. And I don't know why you want me to do that. Because I know that you want me to believe that they're going to end up in bed together. So I don't know why you're doing this. This is weird. This is a weird thing that you're doing. Don't talk about her looking at his like pulse throbbing in his cousin neck. I know. I like that's that's don't please please stop. In fact, like you're ruining this for me. <laughs> yeah, this could have been cool. <laughs> this could have been great. This could have been really great. Other than that, which was very weird. Uh, was this masculinity and the shades of it because I feel like I know the men much better even though Brant is still pretty much a sketch of like a Mr. Knightley Rochester amalgamation and that masculinity was given such a spectrum whereas femininity wasn't really given that kind of truck and I think that there's something really conservative in the insistence both of family and the insistence of like taking care of family and this idea that Sarah's desire, which is a good one because she's perfectly well-trained to be a governess, that option is continued to be seen as a threat to the family, a threat to their class. And her independence and her like willingness to do for herself basically right which also like elides the sin of the fact that like her mother who made a choice for herself was literally cut off without a penny left to the wilds of wherever they live masculinity is an interesting framing because i see our hero going from a very like i wish i was still a soldier to being someone who picks out dresses and someone who enjoys spending time at his country estate he seems to have to me even though sarah is the one getting pygmalioned right he's the one who actually has like a character arc that is the arc of settling down and i think it's interesting that he thinks that she is going Going to choose to kiss someone else for the rest of her life he doesn't really ask much of her as far as like what choices she makes like by the end of the novel um, just that she lets him know what she's going to choose and I thought that was actually very moving but I do see I have my hang up with the depiction of femininity because you're exactly right. They have this like bristling at the the book, the text, and her family has this bristling at the idea of Sarah making do for herself. But her aunt is the one pulling all the strings. And you're pulling the string on a popper. And then at the end of the book, the aunt does this big reveal that like she's not sick and she's going to lie to both of them to get them to confess their love to one another. And that this has been her game the whole time. And that Sarah is actually very skilled at running a country household. Like she has to put together the dinner party because her aunt is sick and be like a co-hostess. 
And so the real bristling isn't with the fact that Sarah is capable and Sarah is talented, knowledgeable, and adaptable. Problem is she was not – is with the class – it's entirely class-based and like what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a good woman is going to vary depending on your socioeconomic status. And that the best version of womanhood, even for Agatha, is to be a married matron. And to be the wealthiest version of yourself you can possibly be, which is so 80s. Womance or nomance. I, it's a womance for me. I came into this conversation being like, I did not like it, thought it was super boring. But after talking to you about it, I'm like, you know what? There was actually a lot here that I really did actually enjoy. Didn't enjoy it as much as the Golden Songbird, but I think you're right. I see why it won. I get it. Who? What is this flip between the two of us? I enjoyed this more than The Golden Songbird. And I bet if I listened, if I didn't read the book and I listened to our episode on The Golden Songbird, I would be like, Morgan would like that one better. But in fact, it is sweet normalcy in the form of the prodigal spinster. Absent wrist kisses. Like this had wrist kisses, if you know what I mean. Yes. Wrist kiss. It was very much a vibe. Very much vibing throughout the whole. So would you say it's a womance or a nomance? I mean, after this conversation, I have to say it's a it's a womance. Wow. You've convinced me. Like I came in in a totally different place. But after our conversation about Freddie Prince Jr. and Brant really does respect her choices. His character arc is great. Literally when I came in, my favorite scene was the dudes in the Modest. But like now that we've talked about all of it, I was like, no, that was like, that was like genuinely a good book. I did really enjoy it, even as I thought it was more boring than others. But like, it's a romance. I would recommend this to people. Talking about paratext, this book uh, was previously owned and well-loved, and we found under a label sticker that was applied by one of the used booksellers that had it some notes on the inside cover by one of the previous readers. They initially read it on March 12, 1990, and they noted very good. Then on September 10, 1990, they said it was better the second time <laughs> and included some humor. The Some other like para-paratextual para elements – there are all sorts of stamps in here. This book has been resold so many times at so many different used booksellers. Ridgeland, I think that's in Chicago. But this one here is in Alsip, Illinois. The very front first page is actually an extract of that dancing scene. And so you can kind of tell that this book was meant to be sold in a bookshop where people would be perusing different titles or this printing of it is. We also have the author's dedication, um, which includes a very big thank you to all the members of the Inland Empire chapter of Romance Writers of America. RWA is an organization very much is uh, powerful and handing out those Golden Heart Awards. And then quote from Tennyson starts off the book, I am a part of all that I have met. That's a lovely Tennyson line. That's a lovely Tennyson line, but I wonder what's like special about it here. It feels like almost threatening in the idea of a Pygmalion. Yeah, absolutely. Then our, our back matter is introducing a new line of Regency, which is a romantic intrigue from pageant books, which is going to start off with the Rushmoreland Rubies. By Wynne Smith, disguised as a maid, impoverished heiress Mary Danforth enters the household that has displaced her in order to find the jewels she considers her birthright. Ooh, okay. And then The Magnificent Mirabelle by Lydia Lee, introducing twins with a talent for intrigue, neither Viola nor Mirabelle. 
wants to fall victim to the dictates of their eccentric grandfather's will, so together they join forces to ensure the family fortune. From Lenland and stately homes to a rather unorthodox convent, the sisters pursue thieves, fortunes, and their heart's desire to a deliciously satisfying conclusion. I hope the unconventional convent has sapphic overtones. I do too. But it's also like these two titles like very much imply that that idea that we were talking about with the first three books, when it comes to a category romance, the romantic relationship is considerably less central than like the idea of an adventure. Absolutely. It's the car that we're in, but not the journey we're on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then I really love this. This is an ad for reading a fundamental and it says the end in a big drop cap and it says the end of a book is never really the end for a person who reads he or she can always open another and another every page holds possibility but millions of kids don't see them don't know they're there millions of kids can't read or won't that's why there's rif Reading is Fundamental is a national nonprofit program that works with thousands of community organizations to help young people discover the fun and the importance of reading. So that was that program that had Michael Jordan holding books and it would say read and it was in your library everywhere. Reading is fun and fundamental. You find out when you read a book. That is straight out of Mrs. Fisher's second grade assembly. There you go. So we had to learn to read for fun in the late 80s early 90s and i know two beneficiaries of the reading is fundamental movement sitting right here on this zoom call nothing but fun i'm so glad i know how to read do you have any parting thoughts for the prodigal spinster or indeed our first round of categories some of the things that we thought at the beginning turned out to be true like as space of craft honement The category clearly is a space both of experiment but also formula as a space where really excellent writers are really trying some stuff out. And that was fun. That was like deeply enjoyable for me to see. I think that they were more complicated than I gave them credit for. And it showed me a lot about the movement of both pleasure and woman's autonomy in the conversation. I also like have gained a greater understanding of like the anxieties around romance novels being escapist, which is silly, but also like these are binge watching a TV show. That's what I relate it to. You can pick it up. Like if you think about it, like television programming, you were very much at the mercy of the scheduling of what was going to appear on TV. You would have to wait a whole week to see the next chapter. Whereas here with a romance novel, like you can sit down, you can pick it up and put it down whenever you like. These category romances are fast enough that you could read them in an afternoon. Like even with The Golden Songbird, which I think was our like angstiest book, Like, it's still so fast moving that you don't get, like, mired down in it. I think that's exactly right. And I also think, like, okay, so it's escapist. So the fuck what? Like, if you're living wherever you're living and you have a subscription to a signet regency where you get three books a month and you choose on Thursday afternoon before your kids get home and between the vacuuming and making dinner that you get three hours for your fucking self to read this book end to end that feels like taking back space for oneself and like when we talk about self-care and what it means to like 
curate spaces just for you. I think romance was on the cutting edge of what that actually meant for women and for people who were looking for that and maybe didn't have it in other spaces. I guess part of me thought like people who feel like romance novels are just escapist dribble just haven't met the right romance. But I think now after talking through these books, I think that they're just not thinking about romance. Like they're bringing a bunch of assumptions to the table because there is so much here. Absolutely. I think one of the things that this really showed me as a project, you know, sometimes like there'll be a thing in Romance Landia where it's like, romance novels give women uh, unreal expectations of men. And I'm like, no, they don't. <laughs> and this is part of, I think, building, building a syllabus and building a body and building a language and building something inside of yourself where you suddenly have a structure where you're like, from our very first book, How Can the Heart Forget, when he's like, oh, you know, you looked good in your little business suit, and, but you look really good in this evening dress. And she's like, I like them both, and both are me. And like suddenly having a heroine that you identify with saying something like that. And then in The Golden Songbird, having somebody say, I have no good choices, so I'm going to choose a bad choice and jump. And then in this book, watching men go from militaristic to creating a space where men can say that they like each other and have each other's back outside of a military context, inside of a modest shop, is teaching us all the ways in which we can be affectionate and soft with one another. And I think really building a language that is important, especially if it isn't visible in your day-to-day -day in a way that is accessible to you. Well, and it's like even going back to how can the heart forget, right? Like there's an imagining of a progressive politic in that and like a legitimization of like choice. And that's consistent throughout all the books we've read. It is important that the heroine has a choice other than the hero and then chooses the hero. And I also think like I don't think any text can be purely escapist because everything is created by a human being who lives in the world. And I think like the idea of like an unrealistic expectation well, like, I, I think about, like, Lindsay heroes who tend to be these, like, hyper-masculine. But, like, nobody actually wants that in their real life. People just want to, like, read about it because it makes for good entertainment. So, like, men putting their own anxieties onto the desires of women that don't exist by being like, well, I'll never be a Viking. That's dumb. They shouldn't expect me to be a Viking. That's like you not having a conversation with another person and being like, do you actually want, do you actually want to have sex with someone who's part bear? No, a human being would just be the answer. A human being. Or like the thing about that you said with Viking, where it's like, or do you, it's not that you want a Viking. It's that you want your Viking to travel through time and write a book for you and like show up at your door. You know, it's like, it's not the Viking aspect of it. Yeah, it's it's not about where they come from. It's where they arrive. And if it's an unfair expectation that another human being will arrive at a place where they care for you enough to change their own lives. Well, come on. Like, is that an unreasonable expectation? I get that like sometimes they're like, you know, the heroine is coming every single time he like puts his cups her vulva possessively. That Yeah, that's a little ridiculous, but whatever. You want to read about an orgasm because you want to think about having an orgasm. I think you said it best when you said it's not about where you're coming from, it's where you arrive. And the idea that growth is the expectation in romance should not be 
exceptional. I think with the exception of the hero in How Can the Heart Forget, I think all of the heroes that we've read in this series, no, I don't think Tangled Threads, I don't think he had much of an arc. But our two historicals were very much about growing as a person, um, but also the idea of settling down. And like part of like being with another person is that person choosing you over something else. Like it, it's, if there isn't another choice, then it's not really meaningful. And that's romance in a nutshell. Um, and it's also like a, I mean, like there's a real working through of like heavy shit in these books. Yeah, there is. And for 220 pages on average, that's a lot. Like these are fraught. So just like twiddle your id and go on an adventure. Check out a cockfight. Dance with no music to the machinations of your weirdo aunt. Hop in a Rolls Royce. Become an illustrator. Just take a chance on yourself. With that. Loosen the crusty old medieval velvet dress in the attic. Loosen your snood. But never your principles. Mwah. Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabeau. That's me. And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzac. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media slash podcast. Until next week. Mwah. <laughs>